Let me pray and then we'll get right underway. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your scriptures. And as Pat has already prayed, they do so much in our lives. And we, we need to be good listeners and then people who change in response. So be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, when you think about it, I reckon humans, we're slow learners, aren't we? We need a really long education before we can do much of anything for ourselves. Can't do anything for ourselves for probably the first year. And sometime around about then, we might be able to start that strange, awkward, wobble walk thing that little kids do on their way to becoming toddlers. But it's still another four years before we're allowed to go to big school. And then it's another 13 years of primary and secondary education before we're considered adults. Now, 18-year-olds might be allowed to vote and join the army and drive a car and get a tattoo, but most still haven't learned how to put their clothes away, have they? Or how to wash their parents' car without being asked. Or maybe that's just in my family. And many of them will have to do another three to five years of tertiary education at university or TAFE, where it will appear like they will actually regress when it comes to tidiness and hygiene before somewhere emerging in their uh, maybe early to mid-20s, they're able to do something for themselves. Now, of course, I expect the young people of St Mark's to really be ahead of the curve, but they're really the exception that proves the rule. Humans are slow learners. Certainly, compare a human to a horse. Horse is born, and it can stand up almost immediately, can't it? Now, that takes humans months, but a horse can do it right away. It's quite remarkable. Horses do so much better than humans. But as we open the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians, we see that Thessalonians do better than most. Horses do better than humans, but the Thessalonians do better than most. After all, they had the benefit of the Apostle Paul for probably only a matter of a few weeks. And yet we read today his wonderfully positive description of their faith and progress. Look, I'm sure you would have picked that up when Kathy read the Bible. Uh, This fledgling church, I know fledglings are baby birds, not baby horses, but this baby church is beautiful, right? And of course it holds lessons and inspiration for us here today, slow learners that we are. So we're going to see today that they have a relationship of warmth, They were chosen by God and they are the real deal. So relationship of warmth, chosen by God and the real deal. So firstly then, they have a relationship of warmth with the Apostle Paul and his two companions, Timothy and Silas. And it's one of the unmistakable things that you'd notice when you read through the letter. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start my time with you with this, um, the letter of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, uh, what I discovered is that actually it was about the only New Testament letter you guys haven't covered in the last 10 years or so, so you've done some mileage there. But I would have chosen it anyway because it's upbeat, pastoral warmth, just seemed like the right place to begin together. There's, there's an affection and a fondness with which Paul and the others refer to the Thessalonian Christians. You see it from the beginning of the book, so read along with me verses 2 and 3 where the Apostle Paul says, We always thank God for all of you. We continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't reckon he means that he never stops praying for them. I think what he's saying is that whenever he prays, he prays for them. He gives thanks for their faith, hope and their love. Those three very abstract ideas that you would have seen on the board when you walked uh, into church this morning, you would have seen them on the screen here. They match my kind of yellow jersey, which is the only time I'll ever pull on a yellow jersey. 
three very abstract ideas, but they present themselves in three very uh, practical ways, don't they? Work, labour and endurance, that is, perseverance in spite of suffering. Now, I'm sure those things just sort of wash over you, but they're actually noteworthy because when you read the origin story of the Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul was with them for only a very short period of time, like um, just a few weeks, um, bookended by three Sabbath days before he was kicked out of town by the local Jewish synagogue. Um, Maybe he was there a smidge longer than a few weeks, but not long. But then you think it doesn't have to take long to develop fondness for other people. But that fondness is uh, noteworthy also because not all of Paul's letters start in this way. 1 Thessalonians, it's among his first letters, uh, probably written around about 50 AD. And perhaps only the letter to the Galatians was, was written earlier. But let's compare the beginning of Galatians to our letter. Uh, here's Galatians 1 verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You know, less than two chapters later in that particular book, he will say these words, You foolish Galatians who bewitched you. And so the pastoral warmth that we read about in Thessalonians is remarkable because Paul was with them for such a short time personally and because it's not a given in all his letters, not even the early ones. He just has a tenderness towards them. The people are his passion, not his problem. So disappointing, isn't it, when, when ministers kind of view their congregations as problems to solve or obstacles to overcome or even worse, as almost their enemies. But Thessalonians aren't Paul's enemies. They're his great encouragement. And it is delightful to behold, don't you reckon? But it is noteworthy that uh, the affection he shares for them is derived from the affection they already have from God. In the very first line, the Apostle Paul describes them as in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Down in verse 5, they are loved by God. I wonder if that's the way that you think of yourself. I wonder if it's the way you think of your brothers and sisters here at St Mark's. It changes the way you think about people, doesn't it? Even people you might find slightly awkward or annoying. Oh, that's a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. Oh, that's a sister who is loved by God. You know, brothers and sisters in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters loved by God really is our primary designation before our location or our service times or our activities or our mission. And so just as our warmth towards each other is derived from being in Christ and loved by God, so the fondness that Paul had for the Thessalonians is derivative of God's primary fondness towards them. And that has to be the right way about it, doesn't it? Well, the second thing to kind of note very briefly about the Thessalonian church, this remarkable little incubator of Christian life and progress, is that they were chosen by God. And you can see that in verse 5. It just says, uh, not loved by God, they were in fact chosen by him. It was not an accident, in other words, that they existed as Christian believers. It wasn't a product of consumer choice amongst uh, the wide range of religious options available, and there were, Um, Plenty of religious options available. His grace fell upon them. He launched it upon them. He made the first move. I don't know if you remember, there's um, in Acts chapter 16, verse 8, the Apostle Paul is given a vision of a man from Macedonia who begs him, 
come to Macedonia and help us. Then in the next two verses, it says twice, the Holy Spirit prevented Paul from carrying out his preaching plans in Asia and Mysia. It looks like that. You can kind of see Asia there. And so a God-sent vision and two Spirit-filled stop signs results in Paul first landing in Philippi before then making his way to Thessalonica. In other words, he hadn't even planned to be there. It was God's intervention. Now, I would say... What is that, friends, if that is not God taking the first step, taking the initiative in the work of salvation? Thessalonians were just going about their business. Apostle Paul didn't even plan to go there before God's grace landed upon them. Of course, he makes the first move. He did that for them, and he does that for us too. It is simply not an accident that we are Christian believers. Here's a question for you. How do you know when something is the real deal? I reckon it depends on what you're looking at or what you're looking for, doesn't it? But there's almost always a a tell, you know, something that gives the game away, something that just lets you know whether that thing is the genuine article or a fake. So there's a show on one of the TV channels um, called Porn Stars, (laughs) P-A-W-N, Uh, about a pawn shop in Las Vegas. And customers come in with all sorts of artefacts. You know, here's a guitar played by Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. Or uh, here's Taylor Swift's guitar from the Miss Americana documentary. Here's a baseball card signed by Joe DiMaggio or Babe Ruth. Here's a genuine Civil War pistol, things like that. And what I worked out from extensive research is just about every episode is the same. The owner of the shop is called Rick, or his old man, who is called the old man, would um, just look at this object as if they knew exactly what it was and how much it was worth, and then they would say, I'm just going to call my buddy in who's an expert in these things. And then the expert would come in and look at it, and they just had a, a way of knowing whether the article was genuine or not. This is not genuine baseball cards signed by Joe DiMaggio because he signed it with big looping Gs, and this doesn't have big looping Gs. Oh, you can tell this is a, is a genuine... Civil War pistol because you can see that little C forged on the barrel of the gun. People who know what they're looking at know what to look for, don't they? Well, what would you look for if you were trying to work out of a church, especially a young church like the Thessalonians, a gathering of Christians together in their infancy was the real deal? What were their tells? How could you know that our church is the real deal? Well, the illustration of the Thessalonian church, and it's illustrative, it's not exhaustive, is that they received the message, they became a model, and they turned from idols. We've already seen that threefold kind of introductory description of verse 3, their work reduced by faith, their labour prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. But from verse 5 onwards, the Apostle Paul paints another picture. He introduces another kind of threefold tell. They received the message. They became a model. They turned from idols to wait on God. So they received the message, but not merely in the same way that we received most messages, like investment advice or severe weather alerts, where we, we, we hear them and don't necessarily do much about it. Um, In verse 6, have a look, the Apostle says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And you might think to yourself, 
what does it mean by power of the Holy Spirit and, and deep conviction? After all, when you read the origin story in Acts 17, there's nothing of the miraculous. Right? The Apostle Paul is he's just there reasoning and then a riot begins. Well, in the next verse, verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 1, he explains what he means. How did it come with power? Well, you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. This time around, it wasn't about signs and wonders, the miraculous and the mystical. This time around, they received the message and they stuck with the message. And in fact, it brought them great joy, even though they were getting hammered because of it. And I think that's a genuine indicator that a church is the real deal. You know, you think in in our culture, as we get increasingly marginalised, although we're not yet being persecuted, is our dominant reaction one of outrage? This is ridiculous. Or does it bring us um, kind of sheepish discomfort and embarrassment and we just kind of retreat in silence? Or does it alternatively bring us a strange kind of joy because opposition only confirms in our own spirits that Jesus is a wonderful master and God is a very gracious God and that the gospel is true wisdom indeed. Um, Where I used to live in Manly, uh, you might remember last year there was a a fiasco around the pride, Manly Seagulls jersey, they had to wear a rainbow jersey. And um, one of the reactions of Christians um, when all the players who refused to wear them were getting into trouble was, this is, this is outrageous, it's unbelievable. A lot of other Christians were just really quite meek and embarrassed by the whole fiasco and went underground. And I don't think many of us thought, wow, here's a point where, where we actually understand we're opposed and yet a joy fills our hearts because we know that God is still good and Jesus is gracious and his gospel is wisdom. Well, the Thessalonians, they received the gospel with deep conviction and with that strange, same spirit-filled joy. They were the real deal. They received the message. And yet Paul says they also became a model of Christian faith and practice. Now, this is... um, You look closely at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and and honestly, there's a lot of modelling going on. There's modelling going on everywhere, more than Fashion Week. I reckon, have a look, verse 6. Uh, says how the Thessalonians imitated Paul and his companions. In effect, they were modelling themselves on the Lord Jesus himself. They'd never met him, but the only way they could have become imitators of Jesus was by imitating Paul, who learned directly from Jesus and perhaps the other apostles. So Jesus models the kingdom existence that was imitated by the apostles, including Paul. And then in verse 5, you'll see Paul, Silas and Timothy lived among them. So the Thessalonians modelled themselves on that personal example. And in the next chapter, the Apostle Paul will say, you know, you guys also modelled yourselves on the Judean churches, you know, back in Jerusalem. But the Thessalonians became a model themselves to believers in Macedonia. That's their region. You can see in northern Greece. And in Archaea, in that kind of southern part of Greece that includes Corinth, and um, Athens, in fact, to believers everywhere. Would you believe, even to believers in St Mark's Northbridge? How about that? Their faith and witness to the gospel, the Lord's message, rang out from them. And that idea of ringing out is our translation of the Greek word exekomai. Now, let me tell you, this will be the only time I ever quote a Greek word to you. I'm just letting you know that I've heard of the language. 
Um, but you can see there, it's where we get our word echo. The, meso, the message echoed from them. It rang out across the valleys. It sounded forth from the Thessalonians, I guess from their interactions with their neighbours, patiently enduring opposition, as much as through their audible witness to the gospel. I was discussing um, the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude and retreat recently. Not sure if you thought much about that, but um, someone was very excited when I was coming here and they said, do you know there are caves on the foreshore here in Northbridge somewhere? I've got no more information than that. And this guy suggested that I might like to practice silence and solitude and retreat in some of those caves. And I said, I think I'd prefer to do it on the decks of one of those nice yachts moored off the baths instead, actually. But I wonder what it would look like if um, our church, if we were, were able to ring out the good news of the gospel in a way that wasn't ostentatious, you know, fine motor yachts, um, and it wasn't reclusive either, hiding in a cave. And maybe we're already doing that. I guess we are, right? We've got open house coming up. There's uh, kids, pupil-free, um, holiday club coming up. Well, we're, we're going to need to make that a, a, our ongoing focus, aren't we? Because it's a tricky thing, isn't it, for churches to look both outwards and inwards at the same time. Our natural inclination is to focus our energy inwardly on the people already here. But both are important. And the Thessalonians were a model of both, inward and outward. And for our inspiration, I guess, the Apostle Paul suggests a further and a final way in which the Thessalonians were the real deal. Let's uh, read verses 9 and 10 together. They, that is, believers everywhere, tell how you Thessalonians turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The Thessalonians turn to God from idols. Now, I reckon that in itself carries intrigue and suggests that a fair few of those Thessalonians came from pagan backgrounds, worshipping the usual suspects of Greco-Roman gods. That's interesting, I should say, because the origin story in Acts 17 suggests that most of the early converts came through kind of a Jewish route through the synagogue, but, but I guess we, we know that it's very possible, isn't it, for religious people to still be idolaters, isn't it? I mean, don't you find that in your own heart? You find it easy to worship things in this creation? Maybe things that you've built with your own hands, even if they're abstract things like relationships. Um, even though you profess faith in Christ alone, I think it's an uh, ongoing temptation for us all. But you see, for the Thessalonians, there was a decisive change, a turning away from idols, from things of stone and wood, from things made by human hands, and a turning towards the living and true God. I mean, I, I think those last two verses are an alternative description of the gospel, of the life of Christian faith, aren't they? We turn from idols to wait on the living God. We wait on him in terms of serving him with all our lives. Now, I want you to think of a waiter in a cafe or a restaurant whose job is to be attentive to the diner's every needs. You know, we wait on God in that sense. We're attentive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and to the direction of his word, not because we enjoy the intellectual stimulation of it, but because it directs us to his desires for our lives. We turn from the idol of self 
in which we're naturally most attentive to our desires and our ambitions and our little program of pleasures and achievements, and they're not all bad in themselves. They become very bad when they become our all in all. And so we turn to wait upon God, being most attentive to his desires for us. So we wait on God. Of course, we also wait for God in the sense of waiting for the return of his magnificent son. Verse 10, let's read it. He was raised from the dead in the past. That's an historical fact. He rescues us. Note that's in the present tense from the coming wrath. That's a future event in which God's righteous judgment will be exercised against all the rebellion and the indifference of the world he created. Now, we're not waiting for the return of Jesus by looking at the sky like the disciples were when he first left, but we wait for his return by living our lives in the knowledge that he who is going to return is Lord over us even now. You know, we got a new king last night. I heard a rumour about that. Do you know, we already had one. And he rules over every little detail of our lives, even now, as we await his return. And so, friends, as we finish, if we never get to go to Italy, if that's your burning kind of ambition, sounds good, actually, that's okay. Because we're serving the living God while we wait for his return and we will be ushered into a glorious eternity of unrivaled splendor that you can barely imagine. So it's okay if we miss out on that. And if we never get to build a successful business or we never get promoted like we think we really deserve or had always hoped for, or if we don't have the opportunity to get married or to have children or if our retirement is just not working out to be as relaxing as we really hoped it would have been, or even if our bodies start to fail us, as we legitimately grieve those things, even then we have to admit it is okay. Because this Thessalonian church, this baby bird, this newborn foal, reminds us that serving the living and true God while we wait for his return is the main game for us all whatever our station in life. Despite being so young in their faith, it really is remarkable, and benefiting from the Apostle Paul's instruction for such a short stretch of time, they demonstrate they're the genuine article. They received the message. They became a model. They turned from idols. Horses do better than humans. They really do when it comes to learning quickly. But man, these Thessalonians... They do better than most. What a neat little encouragement and inspiration they are to us as we likewise aim to please God while we wait for his return. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the Thessalonian church. Ancient example, but a very much a present inspiration. Thank you that they were the real deal received a message with joy despite opposition. They came, became a model to believers everywhere and they turned from idols to wait upon you. And Lord, we pray that their example might be an inspiration for us to do some and much of the same. In Jesus' name, amen.